so yeah, the reason I wanted to speak with you is because well, a we've never spoken, and there's almost nobody else in our generation that's really consistently written the big books. When you read that the old um, that old book in their own right, and Julie Birchall and all these people. They're all lamenting that their peers never wrote the books. They never got the book deals, and they didn't stay productive. So they just ended up kind of complaining. Right. And that culture of complaint, you know, that we we're always cautioned about by you know whoever it is in your in your field. Don't fall victim to the culture of complaint because it creates total inertia for you personally and intellectually. Right. And so anyway, I've got I think I've got the bulk of your books when. Generation Ecstasy came out. I was actually working at Little Brown. Oh, were you? Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I didn't have the, the greatest experience there. <laughs> was my, was Michael Peach your editor? He was. I really like Michael Peach, but uh, I think someone took over there, and uh, I don't know. Anyway, my book kind of got uh, squished. I think it was a bit more out there than they expected, or something, and uh, and they then they sold it to, uh, the paperback rights to Routledge, but without telling me. <laughs> The oh, first thing no. I hear is that Routledge ring me up and say, we're telling you, actually Routledge turned out to be a great publisher. But they actually sent me on the only book tour I've ever been on, like a real book tour. I've been on ones in Europe, but Routledge, of all people, flew me to like four or five <laughs> cities. So I've got most of your um, bibliography, as it were. I've got Rip It Up and, and The Lot. Shock and Awe, it's not as conversational, I felt, as, as Retromania and, e- and even Rip It Up were. It's it's very well-structured, I guess, is my point. Oh, well, I'm glad you said that. There's some, you know, people have different reactions. Like some 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 people say, oh, it's baggy. Some of the reactions have been like, it, get, it comes alive when Bowie enters the picture. And I'm like, really? I thought, you know, I mean, I really enjoyed writing about Bowie, but, you know, my love is much more of some of the other groups. And I even kind of fell in love with Slade a little bit. I'd never really thought about them, but I just kind of decided like, they just seem like a really cool bunch of people. And it was an interesting story. I want to see everybody get up off your seats. I want you to clap your hands and snap your feet and get down and get with it. I said, I get down and get with it. I mean, I still I'm interested in current music, and I write about it every so often. But a lot, of, a lot of the time, the pull of the past is pulling me. And I suppose um, since I moved to America, and as I reached a certain, you know the age, I'm 53, so I'm sort of feeling that pull of my homeland, which is which already partially what I'm missing is already partially gone. A lot of our friends who are expats, they just can't believe what they're seeing back there. Um, and the same way we can't believe Trump was elected here. It's it's a very strange time. Yeah, and it, it is, in some ways, it's like the return of the bad bits of the past I grew up with, but with all the good bits kind of gone away. So you've got the racism and, and the xenophobia and the insularity and the, the sort of, you know, the suspicion of anything that's beyond the White Cliffs of Dover, you know, that sort of anti-Europe thing but you haven't got the great public library system that i grew up with you haven't got the british music papers coming out every week all the good things of the 70s have kind of disappeared and uh the bad things in the 70s like uh the racism there's nothing left for english people in this town anymore i would like to say this my wife and i used to like to go out weekends to, down to the local have a couple of drinks meet friends in there we can't go into the locals anymore they're full up with noisy foreigners and we don't like it we don't We like haven't it. got a place left where we, the English people, can go and enjoy ourselves in this town. After going through two world wars, we should <laughs> at least have the dignity of being allowed to live with our own kind. 
the the real popular rise of the National Front in the late seventies. Bowie's flirtation with Hitler and Nazism predates it. And clearly Bowie wasn't somebody who was speaking to Teddy Boysen. He was this, you know, this whole little concept of the charlatan, of the of the jester, of the harlequin of Bowie. He was playing around with this stuff face on, you know, as really Teutonic, grotesque paeans to Hitler. He's driving the limo, the, the grosser around. And, mm. and then within two years, you have the National Front and Rock Against Racism comes up and the Stranglers. and It was, it was in the air. And I think... Um for him, a lot of it seems to come out of the, the Nietzsche thing, which he, he, you know, quite honestly said, uh, you know, it's poorly understood Nietzsche. So it comes from that. I think I actually didn't realize how much it might come from um, Colin Wilson. I, I only just I just read a biography of Colin Wilson and uh, I knew enough that, you know, he'd read The Outsider, uh, you know, like a lot of young people in Britain in the early 60s, late 50s. Um, it was a big popular intellectual but he also read the occult as well. It's all about this desire to be heroic and to be sort of um, a new, you know, Colin Wilson's whole obsession, obsession was um, reaching out an evolved state of consciousness, like a new kind of, you know, homo superior, basically. You get into that zone where you start to sort of think maybe most of humanity is sheep and they need a, a, a firm shepherd to guide them and, you know, a leader. So I think it's very easy for anyone who's a bit different and a, and and brighter than average, um, you can get into this quite sort of elitist mind frame. So I sort of, I kind of forgive him to an extent. I just think it was, you know, it's spectacularly badly timed flirtations with this stuff. It's consistent with everyone that came in his wake as well. You have, you know, Ian Curtis, Robert Smith. These are all smart aleck kids who are kind of con artists just being clever. They're boxing clever all the time. Mm. You know, there's there's a nice homage to that in Corbin's Anton Corbin's film Control, where he shows his actual bookshelf, and it's just like the adolescent smartasses reading library of 19, you know, 68 or whatever. You know, you talk about how people maybe have commented to you that the notion that the book Shock and Awe of yours really only picks up when you when you get to Bowie, and that, that's so incredibly off my impression. I think that's just the fact that these people are thinking about Bowie because he's just died. To me, you seem to have so much more affinity for Bolin. He is that Cheshire Cat you mentioned. He is that <laughs> that that sort of magic wood elf. He actually was very obscure and vague and difficult to understand in his relationships. And, you know, the, the woman he was with when he died, there's all these, even more than Bowie, there are so many strange contradictions that never became part of the mythology and the mythos of, of Bowen. He wasn't an intellectual in the way that, uh, or even an aspiring intellectual in the way that Bowie was. Exactly. He, he was absolutely a, a mystic little kid telling lies and playing games where Bowie has the, you know, the art lab and, and he's so much more structured yeah. and engaged with and informed about how to work the press. I mean, he's coming out of the, the promotions arm of music hall culture yeah. brings Bowie up. So he understands the game where Bolin has no idea. He actually thinks he can cast spells. Yeah. Well, I think, I think they both were similar in the sense that they were both flirtatious. Like they flirted with everyone. They could, they could, they could charm everyone like you you see bowie's interaction with the camera uh whether he's on a chat show on some english tv program or whether he's on stage being filmed or on top of the pops and he had this ability to sort of flirt and there's something i was just fascinated by this way that um extremely narcissistic people can give off this sort of energy that bewitches you and it's it's almost um impossible to um 
write about because all it is is charm uh, and and how do you how do you define that that's how i end i end up with the sort of cop out of saying that i quote i end the chapter with the quote from sid barrett you know that cat's something i can't explain I mean, I suppose one thing I was trying to sort of write about, which is uh, rock critics generally don't write about. Some film critics write about it, like David Thompson. But I mean, the role of, of beauty and charm and charisma is something that, because it's so hard to write about, but also I think it feels illegitimate as a topic to bring up. Yes. It's, it's such a huge part of rock, and it's such a huge part of, uh, it's an unacknowledged part of heterosexual men's relationship with music you know I think there was a big like even a phenomenon like the jam which seems like as a music phenomenon to be fairly sexless you know but a lot of it is a kind of attraction to Paul Weller uh, as a sort of a uh, sort of somewhat dourly handsome oh yeah he had that aquiline nose and that perfect you know working class countenance and and he was hitting all the who notes and bringing mod back and so it was familiarity yeah. with its own culture which has a sexual aspect to it and it was the same with the, the smiths you know the, the the great bedrock of the smiths fans was heterosexual dudes and who had a and i think they all had some kind of crush on Morrissey, some unacknowledged crush on him, because he was quite a dashing, handsome fellow. No, wait, wait, you brought up something here. I have to get this in. You have always been sort of derisive toward The Cure as a middle-classy band. You had a famous one-sentence dismissal of them as part of the Pink Floyd Cure Radiohead continuum. And it drove me insane because Robert Smith was that. He was nothing but charm, nothing if not charm. But you seem to have been immune to and repulsed by whatever his charm was, I guess is what I'm asking. You know what? I don't. Um, not actually in person. I did. I interviewed him once, and I did find him very char- charming. And um, oh, you started, interviewed him. You interviewed him when Wish was coming out, didn't you? Yeah. Well, you know, I found him very likable. I, I, you know, I like the, I like the fact that he was sort of, um, you know, he's very well read, but he's also not, not sort of up his ass about it. And he had this weird combo like, that's very charming of being very literate, but also like a slightly a lad because he's in i think he's into football right and all that like most oh yeah yeah he's mad he's mad for it absolutely he's a completely thick-headed football fan uh, in real life yeah I, the cure were never like a band that I was crazy about I like i think the forest is an amazing song i like that album um but i never really liked faith and pornography and everything else i found a bit slight i guess actually that you know the pink floyd cure can radio continuum i think is a fairly interesting continuum in a way uh, I've, I've, I've come to sort of find Pink Floyd post Sid Barrett Pink Floyd kind of interesting and um, and Radiohead kind of interesting it's definitely something that people sneer at almost too easily yeah it, it means something to a lot of people that that little group that continuum you know who you know who uh, surprises me actually is uh, Stephen Merchant is a is a massive Cure fan Oh really? And, uh, huge, in, insane. He goes backstage whenever they play. I mean, he's a, uh, but he's he's sort of apologetic about it and constantly mocking, you know, his his sort of nerdy goth, you know, predictability and liking the Cure. Um, mm. I guess to me, Radiohead and Pink Floyd are the most sexless 
you know, yes. social but, social moaning, nothing. Where the cure is so childish with Charlotte sometimes, for God's sake, you know, a children's book. The cure is is just almost comically uh, immature. The cure have a lot more female fans than those other two, I think. And true uh, as well. True as well. Like one of my girlfriends in the eighties was like a massive cure fan. So I have a sort of soft spot for head on the door just because it was playing in the background while we were making out. Yeah, I mean, it's the, it's the you know, it's the guy with some lipstick on and, and the sort of tousled hair is just a winner, isn't it? Just there's something about that music that is that has a wink to it. It's n- yeah. like I'm not actually a homosexual. This is all um, a dress up game, and and it's yeah. it's all pure Bowie. I look at the Cure. I've always looked at the Cure's best stuff, like Never Enough and the rock songs, as like straight down the line. I listened to nothing but Bowie and Hendrix when I was a kid. <laughs> Yeah, I should have. I suppose I should have mentioned in that end bit. I should have mentioned um, uh, Robert Smith and his and his lipstick because that's definitely a sort of uh, a something from glam, isn't it? It's it's all Gary Glitter and, and Bolin. But you know, to get it back on track, this is something that's bothered me ever since what went down. What went down with Jimmy Savile? No one in America knows who Jimmy Savile even is. Mm. Yet he had a complete stranglehold on popular culture for kids in the UK in a Saturday morning cartoon kind of a way. They should dig him up again and throw him off a fucking church into a fire. I don't care. But Gary Glitter is responsible for some of the most joyous, exuberant, hilarious, fucking time-stopping rock and roll. I fucking mm. love his singles. And and Oasis and all this other shit, they're all cribbing Gary Glitter riffs more than they are any Bowie stuff. Right. But you can't even mention him in England. Yeah, he's he has become a bit of a... Um... Uh, uh, yeah, as I say in the book, like an un, an unperson. Uh, and there was that there was that case of the box set. Um, there was actually rather a good box set, but they left out. Um, they, they, they decided not to include Gary Glitter. Um, I try and sort of compartmentalize it and say, well, no one was actually harmed during the making of the records. Exactly. So we can still enjoy them. Nietzsche, Nietzsche was a coke fiend, you know, who... <laughs> You know, the, the the things that were done, the cocaine and the drugs that were dispensed by Victorian pharmacists, the morphine, the arsenic, for Christ's sake. Do yeah. we, do we you know, do we just pretend the Victorian era never happened and, and, you know, your grandfather's an unperson? You know, this guy's a child sex predator, fiend, piece of shit who deserves to die. And, and that was ongoing when he was making this music, which is so fucked up because he's mm. singing songs like, do you want to touch me? Oh, yeah. And come on, come on. And, you know. I'm, I'm the leader of the gang and it's just, these are such, they're, they're timeless, you know, memento type messages. They're so nothing, but how do we, how do we keep them alive without rewarding this fucking guy? That's what drives me crazy. Cause there's literally some of my favorite music ever. 
yeah that's that's it's the same for me and and um it is a problem it's it's, a, it's always been a problem with with art um, and when you like something but the person it does something really terrible whether it's well bowie is the big uh, bowie had an underaged encounter that's very famous jimmy page was carrying a 14 year old or something around you know when zeppelin were at their peak of witchcraft yes an awful lot of great rock music if you if you were really strict to about taking people's conduct into account an awful lot of rock music would be off limits so then probably an awful lot of you know i uh, probably um frank sinatra did some pretty rotten stuff i, I don't i'm not i don't know but uh you know and then there's you know there's literature there's a you know celine was a raving nazi and anti-semite and um so this is you know yeah i suppose you do have to separate the i agree uh, I think the work has to stand on its own and it doesn't have to be a vote of confidence for the artist. Morrissey was a complete racist, I will say in my view. And, <laughs> uh, you know, he said, he said there is a black conspiracy in the British charts. You remember this. This happened when you were, you know, in your yeah. early 20s. He's the dance music conspiracy, keeping the Smiths out of the chart. We can only promote black artists. It was <laughs> fucking insane. He did say some suspect things. It's, it's true. Uh, at the same time, they, you know, at the same time that very year when he made those comments, he, the Smiths did play a, um, um, a, a rock against racism or an anti-racism. Yes. So it's like. But his problem was that he was on rough trade, and the distribution channels that they had access to were terrible. He should have signed to EMI out of the gate, and that's what he was complaining about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think I think in the end, um, uh, his frustration at the fact that none of the Smith singles were get, getting in the top 10. They were always like dying at number 17 or something. How do you feel about uh, Panic being a rewrite of Metal Guru? I remember feeling that at the time that it was like uh, uh, certainly there was T-Rex in the mix there and I, I enjoyed that and I, I hadn't really uh, at that time I sort of knew that he'd been a fan of um, the New York Dolls and I had no idea that Johnny Marr was such a fan of, of Glam so that was a really nice surprise uh, when they started doing that and then the next one of the other songs of that time um, Shoplifters of the World Unite and Take Over has a very kind of Brian May sort of guitar solo. Yes. And that was that was dis that was sort of delightful because it was such a sort of unexpected you didn't really get people in indie music flexing virtuosity like that. No, uh, it was exactly it was the peak of Anorak and C eighty six and it, it's you mentioned Shoplifters. That song has always stuck in my craw, worse than London. The really? it is so fucking horribly produced, and yet <laughs> there is that finale is so beautiful. There's as a drummer, there's just such a nice um, surge at the end. Um, what's that line? A heartless weight on my shoulder and a kick and it's over. Like, it, you know, those things. During the Louder Than Bombs, World Won't Listen period, those singles, Shakespeare's Sister and the Lot, they, I, th their output was fucking unbelievably good. I mean, it was just song after song, perfect, you know, like. And the B-sides, too. Like, we just throw away these gems. Oh, on Gene. The Gene's almost my favorite Smith song, for Christ's sake, yes. Yeah. But it's funny. when so So one thing I'd ask you, being just you're about 10 years older than me when you think about the smiths you know if i'm a teenager i have no idea in 1985 who probably who mark bolan was or t-rex or any of it but mm. if you're more educated coming out of that and you're, you're more familiar with all the glam stuff that the smiths started really copying pretty heavy 
Were the Smiths not viewed as something of a, a crib notes kind of a, you know, I don't think they, ever got, they don't think they ever got that accusation. They did crib things. There's a, I think it's actually in Shakespeare's sister. There's a melodic part of that. I never really liked that song. There's a part of the melody taken from a quite obscure Tyrannosaurus Rex song. Oh yes. Uh, and there's a, there's that other, uh, famously they took the entirety of Russian a push from another band. There's that song on Meaty's Murder that is has the rhythm of um, um, Her Latest Flame by Presley. Yes. Do, 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 do. The post-punk era was very much like not referencing things. And then you started to get referencing. Like maybe when the very first was actually Orange Juice's Rip It Up, where they have the, the quote of the boredom solo, Buzzcocks. And then, you know, it becomes endemic by the time of Spaceman 3 and Jesus and Mary Chain. You know, there's that song on Darklands where... Uh, they're, they're doing the, the woo-woo sounds from um, Sympathy for the Devil. It becomes a bit of a thing in indie music. So I guess, but it doesn't, it's not quite as chronic as it w- would be by the, by the 90s, certainly with Oasis. I don't know why. I, don't, I think maybe at the time it actually seemed a bit sort of fresh and clever. I think the, the Smiths were, were musically innovative enough or like original enough, maybe. How soon is now? There's, um, I think uh, I just saw a thing that Johnny Marr did um, around his memoir and he was talking about how I think he got some of the idea for How Soon Is Now from Bo Diddley the sort of uh, tremolo thing going on in it but you know it doesn't sound like it's a creative reworking of, of other things into something that had never been heard before yeah like, I, there's, no, there's no song before How Soon Is Now that sound really sounds like How Soon Is Now my favorite anecdote about that was that he said that the sound that they achieved was by dropping kitchen knives on the guitar strings Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> the quoting and the reworking of obscure sources. I guess all artists have done it, you know, for whatever I say, say in Retromania. It's when there's a twist to it, I think, is, it sort of makes it okay. Yes. But it's just a straight replica or facsimile. Uh, that just seems a bit lame. One thing that I do think, though, is that the glam comes at a time when music is new enough that there's the sense of being, you know, they said the second or the third generation rock. Yeah. And that, that whole concept of th- there's a limitlessness to the imagination popularly, not just in England, but in America as well in the 70s, because you're literally just making flashing lights on plastic boxes, but imagining that, it, that it's a telephone you'll be able to hold in your hand with no wires. And, and it ends up happening. But what you have is this, ki- this kind of adorable naivete and the, the magic thinking of Bowie and Bolin. And, and, you know, that's one side of it. And on the other side, you have, you know, the suite um, and Slade. That's sort of the working class side of it to me, in my mind. Mm-hmm. That's the pub goers. And on the other side, you have the, the intellectual piece. And it's just, it's very weird. And, it, and to me, what's, what's so weird about it is you, you have that division in England and then mm. in, in America, we, we would call it usually glitter over here. Mm. In America, it's just complete stadium teenage abandoned. It's already written into our culture, I guess, is my point. The sock hop 50s rebel thing is already part of our culture. So it's something that can just be invoked and tapped into if you get the, the now piece right. And, and, you know, Alice got the now piece right for his moment with Alice Cooper. Kiss then got it right. You know, when, when you hit on whatever resonates as now for American youth, they're going to do the same thing they always do every time. Mm. They did it with grunge. Grunge was the now thing. Nirvana happened and kids did the same thing they always do. They dressed a certain way. They started acting obnoxious. They thought they were <laughs> cool. They thought they were cooler than the people who were, you know, older than them. I did it when I was 
16 when Nevermind came out. You know, I had plaid shirts on. <laughs> so I, I look at this in America, it's the same fucking thing over and over again. There's so much more refinement and diversity in English pop music and pop music history. It's just so much more interesting to me. And that's why I became like an Anglophile pop fan. Yeah, well, you're, yeah, you're, <laughs> you're preaching to the choir there. Although, those, I mean, certainly in certain phases of um, being a critic and a fan, I was like the, I was the opposite. I was an Americanophile. Like, and there was a period when the very things that seemed to be interesting and good about the English, British, pop thing which is as you say this sort of refinement these ideas the the conceptualism the the attention to image all that that actually at certain points that has seemed like you know gone too far and become precious and enfeebling and so i mean, in the late 80s i was a real american of fun i mean i was like uh british you know apart from the smiths and a few others i was very much like british indie is just enfeebled and i was totally you know me and my Comrades at Manager Maker, we were all about Dinosaur Junior, Huskadu, um, Sonic Youth, Butthole Surfers. We thought these were so much more visceral and aggressive and fully realized. Uh, and, and in my head, I, I, in my, our projection was that we somehow imagined American bands were more instinctive and less cerebral and, and um, over conceptualized. Of course, they, most of them were really brainy. You know, the Battle Surfers are a brainy bunch of people. Sonic Youth are all. Some of them wrote for Art Forum, <laughs> but we we in in England we projected the idea of this sort of like semi-conscious slacker mentality that was kind of somehow able to generate the goods, you know, because it was less theorized and it was a it was a sort of fantasy of America somehow. Well, I guess the the age of fantasy of America is more authentic and more uh, instinctual. I I, can't, I've, I since I've been living in America so long, I kind of appreciate the think specific thing that you're talking about there. English bands have, which is uh, their contrivance, I suppose. I was hearing, I mean, 13, 14, I was hearing these, um, you know, Pixies, all these Boston area bands, Dinosaur Jr., because we had college radio stations in Boston that reached the Burbs. It almost seemed like your high school band. Right. It, I, I had no concept, and America had no concept of how fucking huge Pixies were in England in 1988. We had no understanding. There's a great anecdote in the oral history of the Pixies, Fool the World where this guy who's an old line FM radio jock is is organizing this Boston area battle of the bands where like shit nothing regional bands compete and someone suggests the Pixies and the guy's like oh yeah we should we should really see they're doing pretty good you know and this one guy who actually was clued in on music turns to him and he said you do understand they're playing fucking festivals in Europe right now <laughs> Like this, there's people jumping into the river to swim to the stage to touch Kim Deal and getting arrested. <laughs> I think they had a few. Actually, I think they must have had a few chart hits. Things like Valoria and Planet of Sound probably probably sort of well, the on the top thirty. Well, they well they were on four AD, so Evo was could do whatever he wanted, and they actually um, the gigantic single I think did fairly well. Over yeah, there. no, that um, yes, that it was all that was a bit of a shock sometimes to see these bands. We'd sort of kind of been part of the magnification process of it, uh, through writing about them and then you come to America and see them playing quite small, small that's clubs. the strangest thing so 
we were reading you, Simon. We were reading your magazines, and and we were finding hearing Tanya Donnelly comes back from England and is like, they fucking love us. We're we're huge. There were like five thousand people at the show because the English attitude toward pop music is so much. It's it's almost like being a football fan, uh, you know, an English fo- proper fo- world world football fan. The the fanaticism and the, and the the energy and the ability with this controlled population size of the enemy and of Melody Maker to turn kids on and. They would do things. They would buy it. They would go to the show. America's so diffuse. Yeah. We could never do that. And it sucked. It was impossible to get good music on the radio. It took, it took 10 years, the whole 80s. Husker Du, like you said, all these bands, the replacements, they're just toiling in nothing. Yeah. The biggest break they ever got was the placemats on SNL in 86. Yeah, I mean, the, the press did have an influence. I don't, I don't think it could like completely sell. You know, I mean, there's many bands that we hyped that didn't really get anywhere or only got like a small cult following. But... I think when, when, it, when it was the right band that that intersected with sort of, I guess, indie taste or music press readership taste, and then the press got behind it, then it, you know, it would blow up. Like the Pixies is a good example. Um, I think My Bloody Valentine was another. I think they were on the cover before they even had a single out. Do you not agree that you as writers were able to take this existing energy, this existing age group nationally and just focus it, just point it somewhere? And it, and it worked more often than it didn't, I guess, is that, you know, there's the North sides and there are these roadside casualties like them yeah. of, of overhype that just failed to take. But more often than not, you were directing, I feel, this feverish age group and audience and it, it just kept working over and over again. It, it just seems so much better than what we had in America. <laughs> well, um, it, it did seem to work. And it, did, it, it was a kind of heady feeling to sort of be in the, uh, in the music press. And I, I think, you know, um, by the time I got involved, it was much less powerful as a driver of you, uh, young people energy than it had been in the punk era. In the punk era, I mean, and post-punk era, the influence of writers uh you know, people like Paul Morley was so much oh, God. huger. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, Julie Birchland, Tony Parsons, and before that, Nick Kent and Charles Murray. And they just, you know, the example I always come back to is the review of Marky Moon. That was like, it's a huge, like 2000 words long by Nick Kent. It was a cover story. Like they had a picture of television on the front, but there was no interview. It was just this center spread giant review. And he said, this is the record that's going to change music it's this is the next dylan figure the next week i think mark mark human went in the charts television actually had a couple of hit singles <laughs> would, would you believe they're actually in the top 30 and it's that that was the power that the press had to sort of mobilize or at least intrigue enough people to go out to their local record store and take a punt on marky moon that um... have you read the boy looked at johnny oh yeah well i read that at the time I read that like about yeah. a year after it came out. Um, and uh, yes, yes. <laughs> what, what do you think of it? That, I, I still adore that book. I, I still have it. And I, I, I ripped off Julie Birchall so much when I was a kid starting to write. I just thought The Boy Like the Johnny was the most fucking beautiful thing. It just pissed in everyone's I did, face. I did, um, yeah. The first music journalist I ever sort of like looked for their byline was, was Julie Birchall. And I uh, did have a big impression on me. It is that sort of thing of like someone stylishly laying down the law that you you can't uh, uh, you can't <laughs> resist wanting to be that person someday and that was what she did you know she just was so um categorical and so certain in her judgments and so stylish with it um and it, and if we don't have that we, if we don't have it and this has been my complaint ever since i left the table 
If we don't have that, it's not any fucking fun. Yeah. You you need to have the writer have its own persona and its own glamour and ridiculous false, you know, whatever. The writer needs to have a place in this thing. And as soon as they become commentators, which is all they are now, the whole thing's just garbage. I I sort of more or less agree with that, or at least I I agree to the extent that I miss that kind of um, the writer as... um, as prophet or writer, as denunciator kind of character, which doesn't seem to be generating itself again. I don't think a lot of people would agree with us, though. I think, like, most people now expect music journalists to be more, um, music writers to be more sort of neutral and fair-minded and sort of, um, and extremely knowledgeable seems to be the demand that people want. uh, That may just be a distortion by like you know the responses you often get to things are like well you left out this or you got that wrong i look at the situation of complicity and i look back to the duran duran that whole new pop thing the the dave rimmer era the journalists just wanted to get on the plane and eat the shrimp and and have a good time so all they have to do to do that is say great things about pop stars yeah and and now that it's the same fucking thing. It's celebrity maintenance. It's getting access to the fucking listening party. Excuse my language. This stuff drives me crazy. It's if you don't say nice things about us, you don't exist. And we're not going to give you our celebrity to help sell ads on your website. If you don't have that self-direction and that, like you said, that that profit attitude of I'm the translator. You know, Rene Ricard was famous for this with, with Basquiat and all the things he wrote. If you don't have the person who sells it, who translates it and says, this is what this means. And it's not being controlled or disseminated by someone who's going to profit from it, except in reputation for being, you know, chic, I suppose. You're rubber stamping everything. It becomes pro forma and it's not any fun. To me, what I miss is this, uh, I suppose, the temperature of... of uh uh, music writing is quite—it's sort of le- I don't know—it's sort of level in a way. Like you don't get these sort of raging voices of of either joy and exaltation about music. Yeah. Nor do you get the sort of bitterly disappointed and railing and tirading and denouncing kind of voices. It's it's sort of like the the, the emotional tenor of this sort of calm assessment. Yeah. Things and there's a lot of um, uh, reading of career moves. There's a lot of kind of like. Like the way people write about like Taylor Swift or, or people like that, there and and uh, it's sort of very much like tracking their every move, and it doesn't really get to any sort of larger questions of like you know, well, what is this word? Is it? Isn't there often a, a great deal of sense of musical ecstasy in it? Yes, like music music should be a source of ecstasy and of that's its proper domain, really, isn't it? Is, is that um, I mean, there's there's a place for sort of clever music and and music that's conceptual to think about or. Or chills you out but you know it, it should popular music is a it's about uh, strong emotions and so that you know the absence of strong emotions in the writing i think is is a deficit uh, now, now bowie had not passed away when you'd written shock and awe is that correct or was it still i, I i'd written the bulk of it like i'd ri- actually finished the book more or less i was like on the last few pages when he died i was i was actually writing about lady gaga had just won the the Golden Globes for acting, so I had a little kind of slightly yep. sneery comment about her. <laughs> the, the crying, the waterworks thing, you know. The, so yeah, I'd I'd written everything about Bowie except the final thing that I wrote as a sort of eulogy. But um, so you were going to say about Lou Reed? Well, I, I was wondering because you know Reed was well in the ground when you were working on this book, um, and then we lost Bowie, and that that it, it's great actually. I'm very happy for you that you had been about done with it because that's the 
that is such a difficult thing to be writing about a historical person when you know they've recently passed or something like let's say Gary Glitter gets arrested and you're in the middle of a biography on him. Th- those things can unseat so much investment in your part and change your view in a, in a really distorted way that's ahistorical. Lou Reed, yeah. his place in glam, and much like Iggy, this orbital, this orbital thing, they both kind of revolve around Bowie. It's very weird because he predates them. You know, Biggie and Lou both predate Bowie, yet they end up becoming satellites of his world. Yeah, I thought I thought that was the most extraordinary thing, and it seemed to happen over overnight almost. Like one minute, Bo- Bowie's someone whose own career is just completely rudderless and seems to go nowhere, and then suddenly he's the guy who's got the magic touch that's going to sort of reignite the careers of these. Three sorts of figures who are adrift, and Mott the Hoople, Iggy, and Lou Reed. And I, 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 it's always like hard to explain. So, you know, something happens with popular desire and critical energy that just can flip around people's status in the scheme of things. It just seemed to happen to Bowie. That, and some, it was also some kind of weird confidence that seemed to possess him. Like he, suddenly he's like the guy. And that's, that, that's what really struck me. Um, the point, I, yeah, point I'm making in the book is Bowie would go on and on about what a huge influence the Velvet Underground was on him and Lou Reed. And I think uh, the Dor- there was like a transcript of an in- uh, the interview that he did at the Dorchester conference where he shows off Iggy and Lou Reed as his sort of hero protégés. I think Charles Murray says, the Velvets are sort of to you what Chuck Berry was to the Stones or something. Is that right? And he says, oh, yes, yeah, the Velvets are the biggest influence on, my, on, on me, my sound and my writing. I just can't, I can't really discern it in his sound. At all, or in, nothing. Or in his writing. It seems to be like a, uh, a statement that he wants to make for some reason. Yep. Saying Lou Reed's my influence and New, New York is sort of my true home or my spiritual homeland or something. Seems to be something he wants to say, but it just doesn't seem to be true to me. Like everything he... Not one bit. I totally agree with you. Made up of comes from uh, yeah. elsewhere, as far as I can see, musically and lyrically. His lyrics have no have very little relation to Lou Reed. I mean, they have gritty, some of them, you know, have gritty, yeah, a cracked actor, you know, there's gritty degenerate things in some of the songs. But. Well, that's the, that's the opportunism aspect and the, you know, understanding the appropriateness of your influences as a marketing, you know, arm of your persona. Bowie was totally callous in my view in how he threw around affinity or professed affinity for whatever was, you know, current and now at the time. And and mm-hmm. you get to this, you you do unpack this a bit, the notion that he is really more of an observer and that he was more interested in elevating himself to a place where he could impact popular culture, but he also was sort of a black hole absorbing it. What I wanted to mention, and I forgot to say right when I was saying about Iggy Pop and Lou Reed being swept up in his his gravitational pull, he fucking took John Lennon out of orbit. That's insane to me. Lennon went and did fame with him. That's how fucking big David Bowie was. Yeah. I mean, he lost it. He did lose it. He tried to do the same thing with Trent Reznor with I'm Afraid of Americans. He, he kept trying to do the same thing, but he only had the ability to do it at that one time. It's a, it's a, it's a mystery, isn't it? Like, it's something I've occasionally puzzled about, but I've never really developed into thoughts. Is like, 
why why is it that people have it and then they and then they don't have it? Like, what why can't they just keep on being good? Uh, which is the mystery of everyone from Morrissey to you know. I'm not a big fan of Morrissey's solo career with a few exceptions. Interesting but, drug. Uh, interesting drug is a classic. And I, I really like Vauxhall and I. And, um, you don't but, like you know, Vauxhall and I? No, I do. I oh, love. Oh, good. That's my favorite record of I his think, by a mile. Yes. Uh, I'm hated for loving. I think it's amazing. Oh. So, but I mean, it's like you know. Every, Prince at a certain point I can't say I've exhaustively listened to his albums in the 90s but there was a certain point where I think he kind of just why can't people keep on coming up with the goods um, and Bowie has it as you say in the 70s he's the magic man everyone wants to be with him it becomes a self-propelling well, thing his look, his look stayed I think it's about looks in many cases Robert Smith absolutely lost it when he tacked on a bunch of weight on the Wish Tour and started to look like a French whore um <laughs> if you if you sell your looks as he did, as as George Michael did, you know, if you make it about how sexy you are, you're going to become a fucking clown. But Bowie kept his looks, and he aged into those looks so well in the in the suit phase in the '80s, big big phase of mm. you know modern love and all that. Um, he could continue to carry his his sexuality, and Mick, Mick Jagger is the ultimate example of this. But it's also like judgment, like, you know, I mean, at his height, Bowie has the best aesthetic judgment around in terms yes. of he knows who to work with and, and what things are happening like with the German music and what he what he can make his own. That's Of the things that are out there to be borrowed and stuff and influenced by, he knows what he can do something with. But then... But then, how do you explain Glass Spider? I mean, what's what? what oh, Jesus! How someone who how could, could someone who did Low do the Glass Spider tour with Su- like... with Susie and the Banshees, right? <laughs> yes. Jesus Christ! What a disaster that was. Um, <laughs> no, the, you're right. It, it, for, for for he is this he is the arch case of somebody who could just point his finger and the world would start spinning a different way. He clocked, you know, you know, he got the right producers. He clocked a way to sell Iggy Pop. He, you know, he did all these things, just insane social engineering feats um, that, you know, had real economic impact in the world. Um, Mm. Like every, every English artist that succeeds has to become a tax exile because they're impacting the tax base of their country. Yeah. People who base it on image, it's very obvious when that's going to fail for them. But when it's based on, when it's primarily based on the musical output and the quality of the music, how do you lose it? You know, like with Elvis Costello, it just did amazing, amazing albums. And at a certain point, you just know how his voice moves and you know how the melodic intervals that his voice naturally, and you feel like you've heard all the tunes before or it's like variations on things. He produces a phenomenally number of good records in, in about eight, nine years and then and then and then it just becomes like uh spike and mighty like a rose and, <laughs> and uh god so uh i mean i think it's it's probably a bit of a cruel thing to expect artists to just keep on being good there aren't and there really aren't many examples of people who've stayed interesting throughout their whole career are there who, who are the ones who's, who've like really sustained or had sudden resurgences of being really great i thought that oasis the the oasis record with um uh the shock of the lightning and and falling down the tomorrow never knows ripoff i thought that was quite a good record to go out on all right yeah but no so so to come full circle and a lot of the glam was instamatic a lot of the glam bands were no different than the one hit wonders of the 1980s and you kind of get into that in the last the, the, the central sort of third quarter of the book there was lots of just disposable fucking rubbish yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then there was a, then there was, a, and then a lot of groups who like had one or two really fun singles, but there wasn't much to them. 
And yeah, and a, and a lot of dreck as well. I think Glam's Yield was probably as good as any genre, really. I can't think of, I mean, maybe post-punk or New Wave had more. Yeah, no, I don't, I, I, don't need, I don't need the pop group, thanks. <laughs> oh, you're not a fan of uh, post-punk then? No, no, I, I mean, I like I like the, the first couple of Gang of Four records. There's some good stuff, but like, you know, tools you can trust and all that stuff that Peel, Peel's had his head so far up his ass with post-punk. God, Jesus, he was putting anything on. The, what was that? that band with the airplane on their single on the cover of the single. And it's like a 17 minute song of just like banging a Tom and screaming. (laughs) It was worse than no wave. But when I think about glam and you you sort of allude to this in the book, I think the important thing when we look back historically on glam is to recognize that it was incredibly fruitful, way more than punk. You know, Mm. we, we have been celebrating and, and you know, hagiography around punk has gone on for so fucking long. And it's like, there's five good records. It's not that big a fucking deal, you know, musically, socially, sure. Yeah. Socially it was, but there's no staying discography. Glam has much more of a claim to the, the sort of soul and tenor of, you know, English youth in the seventies and, and, you know, British Lale and nationalization, the winter of our discontent, all the stuff that went on in the seventies leading up to the uh, national front and the real shutdown in 77. Punk is a reaction to that. Glam is the sound of it. I think. I think, no, well, there's, there's a big, connection between the two and i don't know quite how to describe it like whether glam is the first act and punk is the second act there's a uh, a theorist um dick hebdige who wrote the subculture subculture the meaning of style said that you could argue that punk was a scrawled addendum to glam yeah and there are lots of you know sonic similarities there's there's particular sweet songs that sound like i was just gonna say action action right yeah yeah and that's why everybody wants a piece of the action everybody needs a main attraction i got what everybody needs satisfaction guarantees that everybody wants a piece of the action kind of like one thing with a sort of intermission or something there's a little dead period and you know 75 i suppose is this sort of dead period and um but even then there are still groups odd little groups like the doctors of madness the runaways are forming yeah oh it's real one it's one block of hard rock and really what changes um is it gets even more sort of well i suppose pop punk does it shifts punk rock shifts it even further away from the blues roots of rock music and it also has that switch in the graphic imagery where it's still very stylized, but it's much more about looking ugly rather than fab- fabulous or sort of not ugly, but like kind of offensive to regular people in a different way than glam was offensive. I think glam is is a social tier at par with punk, despite their different looks. And, and the punk people saying that glam was so different and, you know, Roxy Music were, you know, aliens from space when I saw them on television. But there's this other level that what I would call the stratosphere of music that was going on all the time that is so completely divorced from everything we're talking about, which is Fleetwood Mac, Elton John, Electric Light Orchestra, this, the whole stadium insanity of arena rock and, and the, the records selling 10 million, 11 million. We, mm. the, the fucking Eagles. Oh. <laughs> and very, very incredibly well produced uh, and with lots and lots of track, multi-tracking and, overdubs and and i mean i lo- i actually love the fleetwood mac which is not at all a um an unusual opinion it used to be when i first was writing about music i would uh, go about fleetwood mac 
and it was considered um, a bracingly odd dissident move. You know, I wrote a, an article about Tusk and what in. 93 when I did that, um, that was considered bold and, and uh, unorthodox thinking. And now it's just, just about the most boring opinion you could have. At well, no, it, because they, they were the enemy, right? But I, I, I personally, I like, I even like the, the 80s McVeigh stuff. I, Hold Me is one of my favorite songs. I, I like yeah. all of the pop, you know, po- after the, the blues period ends, when they become Buckingham Knicks and, and all that. Um, I, I fucking love their pop period. But yeah, my point is that glam was not the enemy of punk, I, I think I'm, ag- I'm basically saying I totally agree with that assertion of it being an addendum scrawled the end of, of glam. It was the same social tier. The enemy, you know, whatever the perception of the enemy was, was untouchable and they never dislodged it. That's true. Yeah. I mean, even in the UK, uh, I mean, there are loads of examples of specific punk groups who were only six months before were, were sort of very late glam groups like Slaughter and the Dogs were a glitter group uh, in Manchester. Um, Ed Banger and the Nosebleeds. Yeah, uh, there, there are, you know, um, and if you listen to something like The Kids United by Champ 69, yeah. it sounds a lot, a lot, the riffing in it is very sort of glam. Um, but that leads, what, it's weird though, that, that leads glam, to Oi, doesn't it? That the Oi takes on that whole stomping Slade kind of thing. Yeah, Cockney Redux. Yeah. But the other thing that I, that, that I noticed actually was like also even critically, uh, rhetoric, by the rhetoric of critic, critics, people through the glam era were using the word punk a lot. Um, and sort of punk type ideas were being used by writers like Bangs and, and Nick Kent when they were praising Slade, you know. The, the word punk was part of critic parlance for years and years before, never mind the bollocks, and actually years and years before the Ramones' first album. And so that was another thing that really struck me was that it was all, it was unified, sonically unified, style-wise to some extent. You know, obviously punks didn't wear platform boots, but there was the same kind of attempt to sh- look jarring to regular folks. And uh, and then even the concepts about what music should be and going back to the kids. And it's just a shift of emphasis. It's glam is about unreality and fantasy and escaping through that. And then punk is like, now we're going to talk about street realities and all that kind of rhetoric. It was a posture. And I don't think there's anything wrong with posture per se, but when you're positioned oppositionally by the presence and the explosion of something that says join or die the way the sex pistols said it. Yeah. We don't get that in America. It's too fucking big. What what happened in English pop music during these big explosions, you know, the Teddy Boys and the mods and, and the rockers and all that stuff, it, it becomes this this binary social alignment. It, it keeps rechecking itself. It needs to be reestablished. Which side are you on, boys? It's a cultural thing. We just don't have it here. And it it's always bothered me. It wasn't that easy in a way. I don't mean to be dismissive or condescending about it. But I, I think that's incredibly valuable to culture to shake things out. And we just never get it over here. Yeah. Has there never been an example of that? Then? Was grunge not like that? Was it not a big shift over? No, grunge, nobody gave a shit. Pop music was totally non-threatening. The only thing that really happened was, you know, Devo. Devo became popular. Devo was actually the American face of punk, mm. if you can believe it. So if you dress weird, the jocks in the hayseeds and their denim and their Camaros would throw beer cans at you and go, Devo, Devo. <laughs> my, for about my wife s- told me about that. So yes, I think, yes. 
Yes, that was an yeah. insult, wasn't it? To be Devo, right? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that I mean, they were they, that was the catchphrase, not punk. You know, not they weren't they weren't saying you know you're a punk, you're an idiot. If you look at the footage they filmed of the Sex Pistols tour, the kids are all wearing glam makeup. They're wearing they have Kiss makeup, they have glam eyeshadow. That they have no fucking clue how they're supposed to dress. They don't understand any of it. They don't know you know anything about the the nuances of of the haberdashery behind punk. But just trying to stand up and um, and raise your hand and say I'm different. In America, it, it it's impossible. There's just too many fucking people and too many options for you to really become a social oppositional class in terms of how you 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 dress and how you speak. So we've had goth, sure. We've had different variations on that. We've had you know the grunge thing, but grunge was sort of like you just buy different clothes and it's still rock music. It, it wasn't threatening in any way. The only thing grunge threatened Nirvana personally, was an affront to was the music industry itself. They didn't change anything socially for anyone. My parents were still patting me on the head when I was wearing ripped up jeans and saying, whatever, every other word. But Devo was, Devo was a bit more the closest thing I can. Well, they were genuinely creepy, weren't they? I mean, I, I, I. Well, but it was also, it was also the fact that they were huge. They were on MTV and MTV was promoting them and they were conceptually something you could understand as essentially gay. It was all homophobia. You know, anything in America where, where it's jocks yelling at Devo at you or, or, you know, punk sucks in that heavy metal parking lot video. All that punk shit belongs on Mars, this kid says, outside of a Dawkin concert in, in Maryland. It's all homophobia. And it's hilarious because Judas Priest is one of the biggest. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, to, to come full circle where you started this is the question of young male audiences historically driving pop music and their affinity for predominantly male pop stars who are often sexually ambiguous. They, they posed it to, uh, to Liam Gallagher in the live forever documentary. He asked him face on, he said, you know, you have a bit of androgyny to you. And he, he just played dumb and was like, Oh, what you mean? Like I'm a pretty boy. Yeah. I take care of my hair, mm -hmm. but it, it is a strikingly difficult question that would go on for hours. Really? Honestly, it's not a criticism. I think you really only sort of touched at it a bit in the book. The book is very historical as we said at the top, but that piece of, of how this whole thing, you know, when we go back has that aspect of male to male adoration. Yeah. Yeah. I probably could have gone on, on about it a bit more, you know, if I was to talk about it from my own point of view, it would have been like a sort of certain feeling I might have had for someone like uh, Morrissey or something like that. So it's sort of outside the glam era, like because I, I during the glam era itself, I was kind of more more of a child, really. And I think it's, it's partly to do with the British thing, um, the British thing about pop music not being a dirty word. It was never a, a dirty word, and like if you called yourself a pop journalist, that would that would be a perfectly sensible thing to do. A lot of the newspapers call their the, the, the sort of um, the music section the, the pop section. Nick Cohn's book, one of the first books of rock writing, was called both Wapala Pabubop, but also um, pop music from the beginning. And they retitled it in America to rock music from the beginning. So uh, there's something. Yeah, I think it's the fact. Yeah, it, because um, sort of interesting left field rock music has always. Had you know had more of a chance of ending up on top of the pops, uh, and in a place where you know how you look uh, is part of the potential way of getting across, um, then yes, that side of things, the pulchritude of the performers and the and the clothes and everything, there's been a bit more attention to that, I think. I, I, I should wrap up here. We fit an hour and a half. I've taken most of your morning. Oh, no, I enjoyed um, it. Great to finally talk to you. I've been uh, 
jibbing and jabbing online for many years and I've always been a big admirer of your writing. Well, I, I've enjoyed your stuff as well. It's nice to have someone out there who's uh, polemical and uh, <laughs> takes stances about things. Thanks much. I mean, I, you know, obviously I have less and less time to do it and, and less and less, uh, you know, outlets are available for us for this sort of stuff. But um, your reputation ensures, a, I think, that we will always be able to uh, look forward to some new output from Simon Reynolds. So thanks again. All right. Nice one.